0: Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, get to open up God's Word with you. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 5 today. We've been going through in this Advent season where we celebrate the first arrival of Jesus. But it's not just where we celebrate the first arrival of Jesus. It's where the church has historically looked forward to the second arrival of Jesus when He returns. And so it seemed fitting then that we would look at Revelation where we see different images of Jesus given to us throughout John's revelation of Jesus coming as the conquering one, the the one who comes to make every wrong thing right. Last week, uh, Kevin led us through Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, we get this incredible image of Jesus. Jesus is seen standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands representing the church, and he's presented in splendor and glory so much so that when John sees him, he says that he falls down terrified as if he were a dead man. And Jesus, this terrifying, glorious, reigning Lord of the church, stoops to comfort John. If you interact with little children, right, you may have been told to try to get down on their level. Look them in the eye instead of standing over them, right? It reduces the intimidation factor. Jesus is glorious and therefore incredibly intimidating. And the way that he comforts John is by stooping, getting on his level and comforting him, telling him to fear not that he is the first and the last, the living one who died and is alive forevermore. Today, we're going to be picking up in Revelation chapter 5, but to bridge the gap between those two, after John receives this revelation of Jesus standing in the midst of his people, in the midst of the church, Jesus then tells John to write down the things that he's going to say, and he goes on to write seven letters to seven different churches, letters that have some commendation there, some warning, some rebuke. And then we pick up in Revelation 4. We just sang about this scene there in the Revelation song that we sang just a few moments ago. John sees God, the Ancient of Days, on his throne with the glorious appearance of like a diamond under the light. Have you ever seen a really quality diamond being held under the light in, say, a jewelry store under a magnifying glass? It's radiant. It's full of splendor. That's how John John describes God sitting on his throne. And around the throne, we're told that there are 24 elders representing God's entire church, and then myriads of angels, and then all the created world around him, gathered around the throne, worshiping God for his work in creation And this is where we're picking up in Revelation chapter 5. So if you would read with me. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. And honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's go before the Lord and ask him to give us such ears. Lord Jesus, as we come to this book that can sometimes be confusing, Lord, it's easy to get lost in the weeds and all the imagery. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't lose the forest for the trees this morning, that you would make what should be clear, very clear, not just to our heads, but to our hearts. Lord, you give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Stir our imagination. Give us hope where there's despair and spur us on to obedience and endurance. We pray it in your name. Amen. I want you to think about your favorite story of all time. This can be a, a movie or a play or a book. What's that story that you love to go back to over and over? It's the book you pick back up off the shelf. It's the play that you love seeing year after year. It's the movie that you click on Netflix when you're having a day where you just need a good movie to watch. What's that story for you? Maybe it's not quite true, but I'd be willing to bet that your story in some shape, form, or fashion follows this pattern called the hero's journey, right? This comprises most of our stories. In these stories, there's always a quest or an aim, some kind of mission, something that we're out to achieve, and there's a problem in the way of achieving that aim. There's an enemy behind it. And then a hero who emerges to make every wrong thing right. That pattern exists in everything from rom-coms to action movies. They all follow some type of pattern. Uh, One movie or I guess set of movies that we love to watch over and over again at our house is Harry Potter. Especially around Christmas. I don't know why. We love to watch Harry Potter. And if you have watched Harry Potter, if you haven't, I'm sorry. I'm about to spoil it for you. But the main goal is that there would be peace both in the wizarding world... And in the muggle world, that is the non-magical world. But the problem is, is that rather than evil shrinking and light growing, evil seems to be growing. And the enemy behind that is an evil wizard named Voldemort. And so the person who rises, the unlikely hero that steps in to make every wrong thing right is Harry Potter. Hence the name of the books, right? This doesn't just exist, though, in books and movies and plays and entertainment. This same pattern also exists in cultural narratives as well. So if you think about every world religion also applies this same pattern. This is what every campaign slogan and uh, political campaign is all about. Cultural narratives are always trying to say, here's what the world should be. Here's the problem that's in the way of us getting there. Here is the person or people to blame, and here is the person or people that are going to make it right. We all have stories that make sense of the world, narratives that help us make sense of our experience in the world around us. The reason why these stories resonate is because we, were, we are a people who are made to love stories. We are a people who are made to see the story, the story that every other story, whether in entertainment or in culture, is an echo of. That's what John sees here. Is the story going on behind the scenes, the story that really gives hope and makes sense of the world. We're going to look at three things this morning. So we unpack John's vision here in Revelation 5. First, we're going to see if there's a legitimate reason to weep. Second, we're going to see a reality shaping hope. And then third, we're going to see the Lamb's victory and ours. So first, a legitimate reason to weep. As I mentioned in the chapter before this, John saw God being worshipped by all of creation. This was the end that all of creation exists for. The entire universe is meant to bring glory and honor and praise to God, but there's a problem. It's the problem that seems to encompass the entire Bible from Genesis 3 onward. Is the problem of human sin. All of creation was meant to be in God's presence, existing for his glory, and sin separated creation from God. Where there was union, now there's separation. And there's a problem here in Revelation 5 that reveals this. John looks at God's right hand and he sees a scroll. He says the scroll is written on the front and back, and it's sealed with seven seals. So if you've ever seen a large scroll rolled up, this would have had seven wax seals down the, down the edge of it so that no one could open it or read what was inside. This is pointing back to Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2. and If you look in the next few chapters, it also makes sense of what this scroll is all about. This scroll, when it is opened, will unleash God's plan for all of human history, including salvation for his people and judgment for the rest of the world. Once this scroll is opened, God's will for the world will be carried out. His people will be saved and his enemies will be conquered forever. And so here's the scroll. And I'm sure John is thinking, finally, this is the moment. Victory is within sight. And an angel calls out, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? Who is worthy to step forward And not only open the seals, but execute all of God's plans for all time and all people. John says that no one, either above the earth, among the angels, no one on the earth and all of humanity, no one under the earth, in the realm of the dead, or in any of the created world, no one is found worthy to open the scroll. It says that John weeps. Why does John weep at this? Well, because if the scroll remains sealed, what this means is that there is no vindication for the church. There is no final judgment. Persecution will continue. God's enemies, sin, death, and Satan will get the final word. There will be no new heavens, no new earth, no inheritance for his people. In short, what John sees when he sees the possibility of no one being able to open this scroll... As John sees a world without Christ, he sees a history without hope. It seems like the entire universe, rather than unfolding according to plan, is spiraling into destruction and nothingness. John feels despair. I wonder when was the last time you felt that kind of gut wrenching, hope crushing despair? If you can think of that, then you understand something of what John feels right here, that level of despair. If this were a movie, this would be the part of the movie where faces begin to fall. All hope seems to be lost. The violin music comes in, and you're preparing to see defeat. John sees nothing but defeat. You and I, we also can feel this way. Now we may with our heads acknowledge that there is a God who sits on the throne that is orchestrating all things for his glory and our good. But the reason why we often feel despair is because sometimes the world doesn't seem like it's being governed according to plan. Like John, we can feel the reality, the dreadful possibility that things actually aren't going according to plan at all. And that sense of despair that we can often feel when there are things inside of us or going on around us that are spiraling out of control, it seems, and we feel that despair, we run from it. Because no one wants to feel despair, right? We can run from it with resourcefulness, with distraction, with self-deception, anything to avoid feeling the reality of possible despair, When John sees this moment, you have to think that maybe what was going through his head right then was, man, the church has been persecuted. We have endured so much, and it seems like this should be the moment of victory, and instead it's another crushing defeat. This is a very trivial example, but I think it was last Sunday, probably during church, if you're watching this on your phone, we're not judging you. We are, but we're not, okay? Um, But the college football playoff committee was making their selection. Who was getting in at pick four? Was it Florida State? Was it Alabama? And because the playoff committee was right, they chose Alabama, of course. But uh, it was interesting. I love that ESPN, for whatever reason, was like, you know what we should do? We should put a camera in the room of the loser and see how they react. Uh, Just to pour a little salt in the wound. And when Florida State receives the word that Alabama is going to the playoffs, and they were not you see that sense of despair setting in in the room, right? Like we had done everything we were supposed to do. We remained undefeated. We overcame adversity. And it's, in the end, all for nothing. This is what John, again, that's trivial, but that's something of what John feels here. We've endured much, and it all seems to be for nothing. Friends, the good news for us is, is that the despair, that sense of if God doesn't show up, then everything is lost. That feeling that we so often try to run from is not something to be ran from. It's actually something to run towards. With God, that sense of coming to the end of ourselves when every other resource seems to be exhausted, where he is our only hope, that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning. That's where God shows up to meet his people. And so as John feels despair wash over him at the possibility of all this being for nothing, that's when John receives comfort. And that brings us to a reality shaping hope in verse 5. John says this. says, And then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. See, here, when John needs to hear a word of comfort, John doesn't hear from a mighty angel. Instead, John hears from a fellow elder, a fellow member of the church, someone who has received redemption in his own soul. I want this to be an encouraging thing. Maybe this is a bit of a a side point here, but to our current elders, to any young men that I hope, like myself, are aspiring to maybe be an elder deacon in the church... To anyone in this room who, as John says, had been made priests to God. Sent out into the world as ministers. Friends, this is ministry. It is coming alongside someone who is having despair wash over them. Stooping next to them and saying, I get it. I've been there. But behold the Lamb. Look, Jesus has conquered that's all any of us are doing in ministry. That's all any of us are called to do in ministry. It's to come along with sympathetic hearts as people who get it and then point past ourselves and say, but look, there's hope. Jesus has overcome. That's what this elder does for John. And then in verse 6, or excuse me, back in verse 5, when this elder says that the root of David and the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. He has conquered. Those two designations for Jesus, the root of David, it comes from Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, this is hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah is prophesying that there will be one to come like a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now Jesse was the father of David, Israel's greatest king up until this point. And Isaiah is saying there is going to come a time where it seems like the lineage of David has been cut off. Like there will be no king for Israel. And when all hope seems lost, there will be a shoot to come from that stump. And that will be the Messiah. But here, he's not called the shoot from the stump of Jesse. He's called the root of the stump of Jesse. What John is highlighting here and what Isaiah highlights is that this Messiah that would come from David also existed before David. This was someone who was there before David and will come after him. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Then he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That comes from Genesis chapter 49, where it's predicted that a Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then in verse 6, John turns to look at the throne. You've been told that this is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns to look at the throne. What do you expect John to see there at the throne? Expect to see a lion, right? We expect to see a victorious, conquering lion. But instead, what does he see? Verse 6 says, In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven eyes and seven horns, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John doesn't see a victorious lion standing there. Instead, he sees a conquered, slain lamb. Think about how starkly different those two images are. Lion's a picture of strength. A lamb is a picture of meekness, humility. What John sees there, what he is bringing together in this imagery, is of one who is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. If we were to assign personalities to these two, we would typically say there are some people in the world who act more like a lion and there are some who act more like the lamb. There are some with really strong personalities, some with very strong or very passive personalities. What John's showing here is is that Jesus marries these two in perfect union in himself. He's perfectly lion-like and lamb-like without sacrificing one for the other. He is a lion and he's also a lamb. And it says that not only is he a lamb standing there, but he had been slain, killed as a sacrifice. This isn't just a lamb standing next to the throne, but a bloodied lamb that should be dead. And John doesn't see him lying by the throne. says, no, he was standing by the throne. This is the lamb who had been sacrificed and was now raised. He was back to life. It said that he had seven horns and seven eyes when we were talking about this in staff meeting I was asking like what imagery that brought to mind and Charlotte Mems our secretary said pet cemetery. Uh, that's terrifying. This is a terrifying strange picture. but John tells us what the seven eyes represent it represents the fullness of God's spirit sent out into the earth and the horn of a lamb of a ram, or really the horns of any animal right that's the business end of the animal that's what you don't want to mess with right If they come at you with the horns you want to be going in the opposite direction. So, horns are a symbol of power. And so, this is a lamb who has died, been brought back to life, and now possesses the fullness of God's Spirit and the fullness of power. So, he is a perfectly meek, humble lamb, but he is not weak. In verses 7 and 8, the lamb takes the scroll from God's hand and praise erupts and it ripples out from the throne to the rest of creation. Where there was despair, now there was exuberant joy and worship at seeing the lamb take the scroll. What made him worthy? Let's read verses 9 and 10 again. When the church breaks out in praise, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What qualified Jesus, the Lamb, to open the scroll, to assume this office of King of the universe, to unfold all of God's plan for all time and all people? It wasn't the fact that he came with strength and cunning, it's the fact that he was slain, it's the fact that he had submitted himself to death, even death on a cross, as Philippians 2 says. If you look back and trace this theme through the Bible, this is one of the things I love about Revelation, is that it brings in so much Old Testament imagery that can be a little bit tough if you haven't read through the Old Testament. But this is my plug for you to read through the Old Testament. It's worth your time. Uh, In the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, the first humans that God ever created... They were created in perfection, made to be in fellowship with God and with one another. They had everything they could ever possibly want. And they were tempted to believe the lie that they would be better off disobeying God and ruling themselves. And when that happened, when they rebelled against God, sin entered into the human experience. And now every human heart was never going to function the way that it should. We were going to be tempted to put all kinds of things on the throne of our hearts instead of God, who rightly is on the throne of the universe. And so when God comes to meet with Adam and Eve, he calls to them, calls them out of shame, into the light. And after he tells them, this is going to be your punishment. But God doesn't leave them in punishment. No, God makes a promise that he was going to send one who would conquer God's enemies that would conquer sin, that would undo the curse that they were now experiencing and that their offspring would experience forever. He says, it won't last forever. I'm going to send someone to undo it. And then there's this beautiful image where God sees that they are now ashamed of their nakedness. They hadn't been before, but they are now. And so God goes and he takes animal skins and he covers their nakedness. So God, right here in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, goes and kills animals. Blood has to be shed so that the shame of his people can be covered. And in the rest of the Old Testament, every glimpse we see of the sacrificial system that God put in place, it was all pointing to the true lamb that God would offer on the altar of the cross as a sacrifice for his people to cover their sin and their shame. That's how Jesus conquers, by being the innocent, spotless lamb that takes the place of the guilty. So how does that produce victory? This brings us to point number three, the lamb's victory and ours. A few things that I want you to notice here first is that it says he has conquered. When the elder turns and comforts John, it says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome he has conquered jesus has definitively won the battle if you read on through revelation you see that there will be battles going on till the end of the book and yet right here at the very beginning god doesn't want us to be confused he says no no no. jesus already has won the battle is over and it happened in a way that we would never expect we would never expect victory to come through the hero dying. C.S. Lewis and The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, there's a, it's a phenomenal book. I'm sure many of you have probably read it or at least watched the movie. But the story follows these four children who enter through a magical wardrobe into the land of Narnia, and they find out that they were made to be royalty and that the land of Narnia was meant to be this warm, beautiful Heaven-like place, and instead, when they enter, what they find is, is that they're strangers in this land. And instead of it being a heaven-like place, it's a frozen wasteland. And there's a white witch who rules over the land of Narnia, and one of the children named Edmund is tricked into taking her side against Aslan, who is the rightful king of Narnia. And when Edmund does this, when he commits this act of treachery and betrayal and rebellion, Aslan knows the only way for him to go free, the only way for him to ever sit on a throne and reign, to be in right relationship with him and to the rest of the world again, is that blood has to be shed. And so Aslan says, I'm going to go take care of this. You stay behind. And a couple of the children follow to see what Aslan does. And he doesn't show up and devour the rest of the army as this lion-like figure. Instead, Aslan goes like a humble lamb and allows his enemies to overtake him, to bind him, to shave his mane, to spit on him and hurl insults, and then to tie him to a stone table and drive a knife through his heart. And the girls that followed him there are in dismay. This can't be how victory comes. How in the world will things ever get better from here? And so after the enemies dispersed, they're joyful, they're triumphant, they think they've won, and the girls go to the body of Aslan, and as the body disappears, the stone table is cracked, and they hear a voice behind them. This is what Aslan says when the girls ask, how can this be? He says, it means, says Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes only back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery, no sin, was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack, and death itself would start working backward. This is how victory comes. By the spotless, perfect lamb laying down his life and undoing the curse by swallowing death up and death begins to work backward second comfort is this is that he now stands in heaven as our righteousness we are tempted to look within ourselves to find what could possibly make us worthy to stand before god and so we search and we search we hope the good outweighs the bad Friend, I want you to know that this is the invitation for you if you are not in Christ this morning, is that your righteousness will never be found inside of you. If you are hoping for one day someday when you are good enough to approach God on your own merit, you will never, ever get there. Your righteousness will not be found by looking within, but by looking to the throne where the Lamb stands, slain yet victorious. Your righteousness is objective, and it is outside of you. It has nothing to do with you. How can you be called righteous? Because the righteous one stands in your place, pleading the merits of his blood, applying his righteousness to your account. Your righteousness is not within. It's in heaven, in the person of Jesus. Another comfort from this. Not only does Jesus stand there as our objective righteousness, our hope, but he also stands there as our mediator. Notice that when we see the lamb, when John sees the lamb in this vision, he is standing between the throne and the elders, God's people. The lamb is the only one who can bridge that gap between man and God. And because of that, because we have a sympathetic high priest and God delights in responding to Jesus interceding for us, the author of Hebrews says we can approach the throne of grace boldly in times of need. We don't come timidly to the throne now. We come boldly because we have a high priest who understands, who has been tempted in every way yet without sin, has now given us his righteousness. And I don't know if you noticed, but in verse 8... ...we get this image of bowls of incense being offered to God. Incense was something burned in the temple that was a, a pleasing aroma... ...a sacrifice offered to God. And what do we find in these bowls? The prayers of the saints. Friends, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in him... ...if you have said, I'm done trying to look within for my righteousness... I'm trusting in Jesus alone. That means that when you pray, you pray prayers that are stored forever. Your prayers are not bouncing off the ceilings. They are not falling on deaf ears. They are not rising to a God who is distracted or ambivalent. God hears your prayers. The prayers of sorrow. The prayers of how long, O oh Lord. The prayers of Jesus come quickly. The prayers of Jesus and feeling desperate. God takes those prayers and he stores them. He hears them. And they are a pleasing aroma to him. The last comfort is this. is Not only does he stand in heaven as our righteousness and as our mediator, but he also stands in heaven now as the king of the universe. From here on out through now to the end of Revelation, the throne is mentioned more than the word heaven in the book of Revelation. The throne is really what the book of Revelation is all about. And from here on, it's called the throne of God and the Lamb. Jesus now occupies a seat on that throne. Friends, this is why it's good news that Jesus was worthy to take the scroll and break its seals. Jesus is now the one who is able to unfold all of human history at the macro level, the things that we think are beyond our control because they are, and the things in your life that seem to be out of control. God governs them all for his glory and your good as his bride and his church. Friends, we have a king on the throne. There is no rogue molecule. There is no aspect of your experience That is out of his control. So this morning. If you are feeling despair. If you're looking for hope. For a reason to endure. Look to the throne. See the lamb. Slain for you. Who now reigns and mediates. For you. Let's pray.